Well, good morning. If you brought your copy of God's Word, we invite you to open with me to the book of James. We are privileged to have God's Word, amen? It's the only source of life. We can stand on it. We can bank our entire existence and eternities on it. It's a word from God. It's truth. It transforms our lives more into the image of Jesus. As we read his word and we get it in us, it's life-giving. It will change us. And um, it doesn't matter which book we go to. I was talking to some folks this past week. And they were saying, well, where are you headed next? And I was all over the place, having just finished up the Song of Solomon. I was thinking the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation or Matthew or Acts or the book of Leviticus. <laughs> just making sure you're paying attention. <laughs> all right, you are. Um, and, um, you know, the, the book of James was kind of the... Uh, the Johnny-come-lately in my thinking with regard to where to head next. And uh, the Lord really impressed this on me um, towards the end of my pursuits of, Lord, where would you like me to go next? And there are some particular reasons. Um, interestingly, well, not interestingly, it's just part of uh, what's happening. Uh, the elders are currently reading through a book uh, that's, that deals with uh, this very issue, the issues that the book of James will surface. And we started reading that book with, in regard to some, some issues that kind of sprung up, uh, I guess, over a year ago or so, and started looking more intently at the scriptures on certain issues with regard to faith and works. And uh, the, in our um, doctrinal distinctives, we talk about the lordship of Jesus Christ and having a glad submission to him and his word. And uh, that's that's always been a topic of uh, discussion within broader Christendom. And uh, there are those who uh, love the Lord dearly, who may hold a different perspective on the book of James than, than I do as I preach it and teach it here, but it's my hope and prayer that through the exposition of this book over the course of the next maybe four to five months, we will look closely at words because I'm a firm believer that all Scripture was inspired by God the very words themselves. And so sometimes you have to press into words, into the voice of the word or the mood or the tense. And within the Greek language, it gives us some insight into how we need to take that word and understand that word within a context. And I believe when we do that, we will come to a very solid conclusion that as James comes to in his chapter 2, that Saving faith without the demonstration of life change works, this work of the Spirit of God within the heart of the person thus being saved, is a non-saving faith. It's a dead faith. And I, I find it sometimes interesting that that would be so controversial of a statement. Whenever you go back and you read church history and the church fathers, um, those types of statements have been made consistently over the past 2,000 years, without question. But unfortunately, today in our, in our culture, it still is an issue, and it divides churches oftentimes. 
And so let's, um, let's pray before we get started here. I'm not going to get uh, deep into the weeds today. Today is an, entry, an intro into James, the man and his mission. So as you can see, we're going to be getting all of one verse today. Um, now there's a lot of other verses we're going to be looking at along the way, as you will see. But um, so today is an intro into that. So let's pray and ask God that he would um, be with us as we begin this very important study in his word. Father, we just commit our time of studying your word, this book, James' letter to the church, the 12 tribes that were dispersed abroad, that you would use it in a way that would challenge us in our thinking and our Christian living. Lord, at the end of the day, we desire to know you, be known by you, to have our hearts drawn closer to you, and to be conformed more into the image of Christ, day by day, with a heart that says, come soon, Lord Jesus. And so might you, through the preaching of your word, accomplish those good things within each heart this morning. And Lord, I pray that if there's a heart here, a soul here this morning that's an unconverted heart, an unconverted soul, that through the preaching of your word, you would bring conviction by your Holy Spirit. And there would be a, some eyes, some spiritual eyes opened to see the beauty of Jesus Christ and faith in him alone that saves that changes lives permanently and forever. And Lord, if that's the case, any time throughout the course of this study, might that individual come seek me out that we might have further conversation on how to have an abiding relationship with Christ. And we can disciple that soul to love and follow Jesus all their days. We pray all this in Christ's name. And everyone said, Amen. So as mentioned, we're beginning the book of James. This book has been compared by some to the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, uh, particularly the book of Proverbs because of its very direct and sometimes pungent statements uh, on the importance of wise living. Uh, James, uh, is, interestingly enough, in the culture in which we're living and the language that we're speaking of today, James is a very, um, very strong in his condemnation of social injustice. We're going to see that in chapters 2 and chapter 5. There is a, a way and a context in which to speak about that rightly, and I believe that we, we're going to see that within this book. That has prompted some to think of James and refer to him as the Amos of the New Testament. But James, as we're going to see, was profoundly influenced by the teaching of Christ, and in particular, the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, we're going to see through the book of James that he makes reference to the Sermon on the Mount over 20 times throughout the teaching of this letter. And so it's led some to think of James' letter almost as a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, a commentary on the teaching that he learned from his brother Jesus. So this morning as we begin this book, um, I want to unpack a few essential truths out of verse 1 in particular and just look at the man and look at his mission as a way of setting up our entry into this book of James. Look at chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greeting. So here we have James, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the man, and we have to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. We have the mission. 
the man and the mission. And one of the first things that I want to note is that this James is the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. And of all the Jameses that's in the New Testament, there's really only two prominent enough to have penned a letter with such authoritative um, uh, thrust as is this letter, and with the intimate knowledge of Christ's teaching, um, which we see in this letter. And that would either be James, the son of Zebedee, or James, the half-brother of Jesus. And we know that the first was martyred uh, in the early part of the church. We see that in Acts chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 2. So that obviously would remove him from consideration in the penning of this letter. So the only other reasonable candidate would seem to be James, the half-brother of Jesus. But in holding that position, it raises a couple of issues. And one such issue is the fact that if Jesus has half-brothers, what does that imply, obviously? Well, it implies that his, the mother Mary uh, did not remain a perpetual virgin all through her days, as is held by the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Oriental Orthodox Church. In their doctrinal statements, they teach and hold to a perpetual virginity of the Virgin Mary. So if she indeed had other children, i.e. had a son named James, being Jesus' half-brother, that would put that in question. It would actually make it a, an errant teaching. So let me build a simple case from some scriptures here that might bring some, some light to the fact that James is a half-brother of Jesus and that Mary was not a perpetual virgin all her days. We're going to start by looking at Matthew chapter 1 verses 24 and 25. It says, And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. But, verse 25, kept her a virgin until, and you can see I put this in all caps as a way to highlight it, so I will underline it here to bring more highlighting of that, until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So this passage clearly implies that Joseph and Mary had normal marital relations following the birth of Jesus. Listen, we, we know that Joseph was a righteous, God-fearing man, but to say that he kept his wife a virgin all the days of their relationship might be over the top. I'm just saying. Did we just finish the Song of Solomon? Yes, we did. Is it God's intention for husband and wives to enjoy marital intimacy, without question. So to wrongly assume that somehow it's more holy to abstain from that in marriage would be in error. So again, they had normal marital relations following the giving of birth to Christ, who was born of the virgin Mary. We also see in passages like Matthew 13, <clears throat> some similar Ideas. Notice, when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. 54. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? So those who were of his hometown, who watched him grow up, were saying, Where did, where did this man 
get the wisdom and the miraculous powers. Isn't he the carpenter's son? Isn't this Joseph's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, and Simon, and Judas, and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? We know him. We know his father. We know his mother. We know his brothers. We know his sisters. How did Jesus end up getting such wisdom and miraculous powers? Verse 57, they took offense at him, that's Jesus, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household, and he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. So one of the things we see from this passage, obviously, is that Jesus was known within his hometown. They knew his father, his mother. They knew his brothers. They knew his sister. They knew his family. Contextually, those <clears throat> living there in Nazareth would not have wrongly concluded that Joseph kept Mary a perpetual virgin all the days of her life. Such theology had to emerge some 1,500 years later, perhaps, because well, you weren't so close to the source and the fire. But notice the very end of 58. <clears throat> we see of this family and of his brothers and those in his hometown, they were unbelieving. They weren't even believing after seeing Jesus do the things that he was doing with such miraculous powers and the teaching that he had with such wisdom. So, without question, it seems... And there are other passages that we could jump to and kind of highlight very basic observations like this, but it seems very clearly from multiple passages within the New Testament that Jesus had a father, a mother. Now, it wasn't his biological father. He was born of a virgin. The Holy Spirit overcame Mary, and she was conceived of the Holy Spirit. So we know that he's not his biological father. That's why we call James like a half-brother of Jesus. Same mama, different daddy. Those kind of things. So without... Question, James, it's rightly to think of him as the half-brother of Jesus. John's gospel also makes clear that Jesus' brothers, as we see here at the end of verse 58, did not believe in him. Notice John 7, 1 through 5, After these things Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Verse 3, Therefore his brothers... <coughs> said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And again, for not even his brothers were believing in him. Uh, different gospel, same observation, the same truth, that the brothers were not believing in Jesus. So whenever you have these kinds of observations within the text, we see that Jesus had brothers right here. We see that he had sisters. He had a father. He had a mother. Whenever you think of the, the, the language in the text, it's always important to go back and look at the Greek, and we see in this Matthew 13, 55, as we were just looking at, that he had brothers. Adelphos is the Greek from which we get brother, and Adelphe, you see the difference on the ending here, you get the brother and the sister. And so in the Matthew 13 passage, 
these are the words that are used for brother and sister. And if you go to a, like the, the TDNT, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, you will see that Adelphos and Adelphe means brother and sister. Could it refer to perhaps a spiritual brother? Like if I'm thinking of Matt Kerr here and I say, hey, brother, and I refer to him, it, that's, it's possible to refer to someone as a brother who's not a biological connection. We don't share the same mothers, but we have the same heavenly father, and so in that sense, we're brothers. But in the, in the context of the scriptures, we see that usage, but what do we also have to help us understand that usage? It's called the context. Context is king. Eisegesis is out. Exegesis is in. And when you keep these things in the context, we see very clearly. Because there are words in the New Testament, as we see in Colossians 4.10, four words, and this is where those other, you know, the, the Roman Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox, they believe that when it refers to brother and sister in Matthew 13 and every other passage that it refers to Jesus having brothers and sisters, they believe that it's making reference to a cousin or a distant relative. But the Greek has a word for cousin, a distant relative, and we see it exclusively in Colossians 4.10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas's cousin, Mark. So the writers of the New Testament, had they intended to refer to those brothers and sisters as being cousins or distant relatives of Jesus, there was a word that could have been used very specifically and easily for that without question. So we see without too much um, consternation, and we should come to the, the easy observation that, that Mary was not a perpetual virgin all the days of her life, and that James is a half-brother of Jesus. It doesn't matter what all those other millions of so-called Christian denominations want to hold to, we go to the scriptures, and this is why Sola Scriptura was one of the cries of the Reformation. Scripture alone. Amen? Amen. Scripture alone. What do the Scriptures say? You know, and the good news is for you is that I didn't write it. Amen? And the good news for me is that you didn't write it. It claims to be written by the Holy Spirit, and we've received it in letters, and it's now been canonized into a book. We call it the Bible, and it has language words that can be studied and pressed in on. So why the need to try to press in and change and, and make things say what obviously the text isn't saying? I will never understand that. The simplest understanding of the text is what we should always go with. And without question, James is a half-brother of Jesus. So how did James the half-brother of Jesus, who was a non-believer, we saw that in two different passages, go from being a non-believer to becoming the recognized leader of the Jerusalem church and to writing this letter. Well, notice 1 Corinthians 15. We saw this a couple of weeks back on Resurrection Lord's Day. Paul writes here, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he was buried, and then he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So these are post-resurrection appearances. To Cephas, then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, 
he appeared to me also. Paul tells us that Jesus made a personal post-resurrection appearance to his half-brother James, which from my conclusion obviously would have been life-changing. Can you imagine? I mean, it might, it might have changed your perspective as to who James really was. This half-brother of yours, it, it, you, it was said that you were unbelieving. The brothers, not even his brothers, were believing in him. But on a post-resurrection appearance, James seems to have, been, to have become a believer very quickly. Notice also Acts <clears throat> chapter 1, 13 and 14. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying that is, Peter and John. Now, this is, again, the, the, uh, the time at Pentecost when they've gathered into the upper room. There was Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his... Notice who else is here. Those once unbelieving brothers are in the upper room. And now they are what? They've, they've committed themselves with one mind, continually devoting themselves to prayer. They did exactly what Jesus had asked his disciples specifically to do. They went and they waited for the Holy Spirit to come to descend upon them. So following the resurrection of Christ, uh, these apostles gathered. We saw that instruction from Jesus, and we see that James is, and his brothers and his mother are there in the upper room waiting. So if you just walk a mile in James' shoes, and you were to have grown up with, and maybe you have a brother or sister that's similar to this, couldn't be exactly like this, but they might think that they are somewhat like this, who, 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 who think they never disobeyed mom, Jesus never did. But, he, you know, James grew up with a brother who never disobeyed mom or dad. He always put others' interests ahead of his own. Uh, he was the kid that never missed the quiet time. I mean, you almost automatically grow, grow up knowing that something's a little bit abnormal with your brother. Then around the age of 30, he starts proclaiming to be God. And then you're certain that he's one that's flown over the cuckoo's nest, right? I mean, uh, that's an impossibility. So to some degree or another, therein it seems would have been kind of the life of what James may have lived and what that might have looked like having Jesus as a sibling. Which is why it seems that James chapter 1, verse 1, is one of the strongest philosophic apologetics for the deity of Jesus Christ. That James, a monotheistic believing Jew, who grew up in the same household of Jesus, who observed his life, who disbelieved that Jesus was anyone special, yet all of a sudden following the resurrection, following the crucifixion, in the resurrection, he becomes one of the strongest leaders of the church and ultimately a martyr for his faith in Jesus, his brother, who he now worships as being God. It makes no sense apart from the reality that Jesus himself 
appeared to James following the crucifixion, and his heart and mind were changed, having had his eyes opened and given a spiritual new birth. I can't think of any other logical conclusion or reason for James than that. And I think the scriptures bear that out beautifully as well. Amen? How else could it be? Now look back at James chapter 1 verse 1. Notice again it says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, after everything we just went through, it's important to, to note that James is making a reference to himself here as we see the Apostle Paul and other New Testament authors do. They refer to themselves as a doulos. James, a doulos of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this word, it's translated in the New American Standard here, bondservant, but the word doulos is is a word in the Greek that most simply means slave, and it describes a person who is derived of all personal freedom and is totally under the control of a master. That's, that's the word doulos, and we see that very clearly in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, the TDNT, which is one of the um, go-to uh, New Testament dictionaries when you're doing word studies. And so I've just kind of copied and pasted it here for you just so that you can see with your own eyes what I saw whenever I looked up this word doulos. And you see across here, they give some, some differences they, uh, with the, the same root of doulos, the os being the ending. And then you got soon doulos, and then you got, there's the soon and then the doulos, then you got doule, you got douleo, and you got doulea, or ah, doulea, that's an alpha on the end here. And notice what it says. It says, all the words in this group, in other words, how this word gets used across the New Testament scriptures, all the words in this group, the grouping of doulos, serve either to describe the status of a slave or an attitude corresponding to that of a slave. And then they articulate just briefly, doulos is a slave. Doule, there's the the feminine, a female slave. Duleo, to be a slave, to stand in relationship of a slave. And dulea, dulea, slavery. When it's used as an adjective, notice. So it's dulas or dule or dulan. When it's used in its adjectival force, it's just simply enslaved or performing the service of a slave. And they, they go on to say the meaning, right here, the meaning is so unequivocal and self-contained that it is superfluous to give examples of the individual terms or to trace the history of the group. In other words, it's without question that doulos has a singular understanding and meaning, and it's the word slave, an individual who has no rights, they are, they are owned and belonged to a master, and they follow that master. That's the use of doulos. Are there other New Testament Greek words that make reference to like a, a home servant? Yes, it's not doulos. Are there other New Testament words that make reference to people who perhaps serve in different capacities? Yes, as a servant, and maybe even as a bond servant, but not doulos. And that's why the translation that we have of bond servant from the New American Standard, in my estimation, is a bit weak. It leaves the reader with the assumption that 
that James has maybe decided, well, maybe it is better to follow Jesus, or maybe it's a little, maybe my odds are, my best, uh, you know, bet odds are to go ahead and follow Jesus, so I'll be a bond servant. I will voluntarily make myself one of his. No, when you get converted, God makes you his own. You went from having a master who was the devil to now having a master who is Jesus. The scripture says all people are under the mastery of someone, and you can't serve two masters. And so it's important to understand the usage of this language because here James, who's the half-brother of Jesus and everything we just walked through, the way he thinks of himself is this, as a doulos, is as a slave. Think of the significance and the significant things that he must have seen to come to the conclusion he's a monotheistic Jew who had only worshipped God and God alone, monotheism, one God, and now this man is saying, gee, I'm a slave to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Something radical transferred in his life to bring him to such a conclusion. I call it conversion. But in the case of James and his conversion, from the world's perspective the onlooking world looking in, they would still see James as perhaps just being a free man from a world's perspective, just doing what he wants to do, how he wants to do it, when he wants to do it, using his free will to operate and do exactly as he wants to do, because that's what we do in life. And from a worldly perspective, that's what we all see. From a heavenly perspective, God did something radical in the heart of James that converted him to where he sees himself now as a slave of Jesus and God. And so somewhere in his thinking, he started believing the teaching of Jesus when he said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. James came to a conclusion that that teaching was indeed true. And I don't know about you, <clears throat> but this is indeed a very compelling story, is it not? And, and this, by the way, th this conversion of James, though its context and the particulars are different than yours and mine, where we have common ground with him is where? He got converted, and so did we. You claiming conversion this morning? You see, James, this, this is a rat, from not believing, it's my brother who's gone one over the cuckoo's nest, to I'm worshiping him as God. Did it change his life? It did radically, and not only just for time, but also for eternity. His eternity now was secured as a follower of Jesus who would be in his kingdom forever and ever and ever. Same is true for you and me. When God converts a human soul and changes our hearts, what precipitates following that, not on the front end, on the back end is changed life. And that change in life is something that we cannot fake. Well, we might could fake it a little bit. We might could fake it for a while, but you can't fake it forever. I remember having a conversation with one of my best friends from high school. He had heard of my conversion. He was back in town. He was living up in Austin playing football at the University of Texas. I Forgive me in advance for even having to say that here in Oklahoma. But um, grew up in Dallas. 
And so it was late, and, and, and we pulled over into a parking lot, like just a Safeway or something, and he started asking me questions about, you know, what's happened to you? Why are you, what, what happened to you? So I gave him my testimony, and I shared of coming to faith in Jesus and having my spiritual eyes opened. I probably didn't use that language quite like that because I wasn't as versed, perhaps. <clears throat> and he said to me, well, he said, well, Ben, I could, I could change my life, too, if, if I wanted to. And I said to him, I said, exactly. But the, the, the difference is, is you don't want to. And now all of a sudden, I do. And all I can say is that God intersected my life. He opened my eyes to see and my heart to believe. Something changed from the inside. It was out of my control. And now I'm working it out. I think Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Amen? It's a work of God. It's a work of the Spirit. We see that very clearly in John chapter 3 as well. And this conversion is what happened to James, and it's what has happened to each of us this morning. Our lives should be different as a result of following Christ, without question, without question. And church history also indicates that this is how James lived his life for the balance of his life. James is said to have garnered the nickname Camel Knees. If you've ever seen camel knees, they kind of look gnarly. They're all thick skin because those big animals, they'll get down on their knees and just from being on their knees, they build up these large and huge, ugly calluses on their knees. And James was nicknamed camel knees, uh, it was said, due to his excessive praying. Eusebius, the church historian, yeah, I've got it, I already got it up for you. He, he quotes Eusebius, <clears throat> the church historian, quotes this guy right here. I tried to practice saying his name. Does anybody want to volunteer? Um, yeah, I didn't think so. But you can see it. That's why I put it there so that if my, sometimes that Texas accent rears its ugly head and, and I get a little thick in my draw and I go to say words like this and it just doesn't come out right. But you can see it right there. So Eusebius was quoting this gentleman on James. And in quoting him, Eusebius writes, James used to enter alone into the temple and be found kneeling and praying for forgiveness for the people so that his knees grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship of God. What a testimony. I was convicted just putting that into my PowerPoint. I started like, Feeling my knees, I'm like, man, those are pretty smooth knees, Averett. And I'm going, you know, yeah, but we have carpet, and it's not as bad, right, Greg? I mean, we start, but in reality, am I, am I praying? I don't know if you get on your knees, you can sit in your chair, you can lay on the ground, don't sleep. But has my heart been so impacted by the conversion of God intersecting me and giving me new life in Christ? <clears throat> that I'm out praying for the forgiveness of lost people. James did. Regarding his death, we saw this a few weeks ago. Eusebius states this. He said, James met his death at the hands of priests who threw him from the roof of the temple 
He survived the fall, but they began to stone him until a laundryman beat him to death with a club. James was so convinced that Jesus Christ was truly the Savior of the world that his identity, his self-esteem, his approval was no longer defined by others or in anything this world had to offer him, but only in being a doulos of the Lord Jesus and of God, of being a slave to the Lord who is the Christ, the Messiah. And he had the needs to prove it. His life matched his testimony. And this, brothers and sisters, needs to be the goal of every single one of us, too, those whose hearts and minds have been converted. We must learn to think rightly about whose we are being children of God. And that needs to change us for both time and eternity. That's James the man. That's Jesus' half-brother. Now quickly to his mission. Notice the end of verse 1. He says, To the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. So in addition to his leadership role in the Jerusalem church, James also was used by God to write to his Jewish brethren who fled Jerusalem when severe persecution broke out against Christians following the Feast of Pentecost. The twelve tribes mentioned right here is a term used in the New Testament that commonly referred to the nation Israel. So James is writing to Jewish believers, Jewish Christians, Jewish converts who are living outside of Jerusalem. Let me show you quickly who these people are. In Acts 2, 5 and 9 and 11, now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Parthians, Medes, Elimelites, and the residents of Mesopotamia and Judah and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. These devout Jews came to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. They heard the gospel preaching of Jesus Christ through Peter. They became converts and within a few days were driven out of Jerusalem under persecution and returned to the homes from which they came. Now let me show you how many converts we're talking about here quickly in Acts 2.41. So then those who had received his word were baptized. That's the preaching of Peter. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. You get down to Acts chapter 4, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the message believed. By the way, do we need preachers of the good news? We absolutely do. We need to be the hands and feet, the beautiful feet that go and take the good news. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The, the message needs to be heard. It thus needs people who will speak. So when they heard the message, they believed. And the number of men came to about 5,000. So in chapter 2, we got about 3. In chapter 4, we got about 5. 
And then when you get to Acts chapter 8, so that's a lot of folks coming to faith in Jesus, a lot of Jewish brethren coming to faith in Jesus. And when you get to chapter 8 of the book of Acts, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution, we see it right here, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered. What did James say to the 12 tribes? Scattered. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. It's to these believers, when persecution began, they became scattered throughout the regions. It's to these believers that James originally writes. These are the Jewish Christians who become dispersed abroad. And what we learn from James is that a Jew who embraced Jesus as Messiah should expect to live a difficult life, a life of persecution. Their indoctrination into naming Jesus as Lord was the indoctrination of persecution. John, in his gospel, chapter 15, verse 20 Jesus said it like this, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave, a doulos, is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And they were experiencing that immediately. And in Acts 22.4, Paul said, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prison. But then it was the apostle Paul himself who, having his conversion, as did James, we see in 1 Corinthians 4.12, he says of himself now as a believer, when we are reviled, we bless. So now he's on the reviling end of the stick. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now, and what's interesting is, I don't know about you, but it, it, and it's not here full-fledged yet, but it's getting to the point where believers in our culture are starting to be viewed as, have you, are you starting to see this a little bit more? The scum of the world. It's, you're starting to hear the beating of that drum a little bit more loudly today. It's not in full... They can't quite get it synchronized yet, but boy, the forces of darkness and evil sure are trying. It won't be soon, probably not, probably not in my lifetime, but I tell you, the slippery slope is getting so slippery so quickly, it might be. But I do believe the day is coming that you young folks are going to be viewed as the dregs of all things for holding to such an archaic book that puts people down. You need to wake up. You need to get woke. And you're saying, listen, I love God and I'm going to love people. It's that simple. No. You bear the name Christ, this, will be, this, this is what's coming for you. It was, it was for them. So listen, when you get reviled, do this. When you start getting persecuted, do this. When you get slandered, try to conciliate. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Amen? 
James is writing to the scum of the world, the dregs of society, and he is challenging them to live in that context a distinctly Christian life in the face of such great opposition. And many of these believers, uh, many of them lost everything. When they were fleeing from persecution, many were, live, were living there in Jerusalem. Many had to leave their homes. Many had to leave their businesses. Many had to leave their way of, of, of living. It cost them everything to follow the man, Christ Jesus. The individuals to whom James is writing, they know what it means to face adversity. And right there in that context of suffering and of the loneliness that would come with that, and the sense of loss, the discouragement, the fatigue that could come with that, God sends them a word of encouragement through James, Jesus' half-brother, in the form of a letter, letting them know how to apply the teaching of Christ in their Christian context. Isn't that awesome? I don't know about you, but that makes me want to read and study the book of James. Makes me want to, I want to know this book so that I can do this. So that I can make the, the same kind of application in my life that James was giving these beleaguered believers 2,000 years ago. A word came from God specifically to believers who might be living in a cultural context of difficulty, of trial, of persecution, of suffering. And he's saying, I see your suffering. Hang in there. Persevere all the way to the end. The book of James is very... St- chapter 1, if you've, ne- if you've ever memorized an entire chapter of any book of the Bible, I would highly recommend it be James chapter 1, the entirety of the chapter. You will live James chapter 1 in so many different ways, and it will give you that spirit and still, still small voice when you're facing, let's see, um, various trials. Consider it joy. It will give you the... the the spirit-inspired, still small voice that comes from the Word of God, not just from some random voice, but from the Word of God that says, hang in there and persevere. You can make it. This is good. This is what will get you through the dark night. Amen? God's Word is His megaphone to you. It's His megaphone to a world that's in pain and disappointment. And not just the world, but it's a a megaphone to His children, His believing children who need to persevere while they are proclaiming Jesus and being viewed as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things. And as such, I believe the book of James still has a lot to say to you and I today. And, And hence... Beginning next week, we're going to jump right in in the next verse, verse 2. And we'll pick up our pace. But we did cover quite a few verses this morning. We learned about the man and his mission. Who was he and why is he writing? And might that give us a hunger and a desire to want to know what's in this book? What did God say through James, Jesus' half-brother, to encourage these believers? Come back next week. We'll start finding out. Let's pray.